Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to our 200th plus one episode. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> well, so the idea was, this is number 201. The idea was you can't do a best of the first 200 if the episode is number 200. So that makes sense, right? Well, I was also thinking like, is it one of those things where 201 is a 200th episode because we didn't start at episode zero? That's not how math works. <laughs> That's not how math works. So, uh, well, I was thinking, you know, the year 2000 where people talked about the new millennium and anyway, <laughs> never mind because there was no year zero. But anyway, welcome to our business podcast where we cover business in the news and add our legal twist to these business news items that we cover. And we've done about a couple hundred times minus a couple episodes here and there, which were also recap episodes, right? Yeah, I think we've done one recap episode, right? Well, we did one on like number 20, I believe. <laughs> so we were both gone or something. Yeah, we were both gone. Then we did one, I, I think 20 and then 100 and then yeah, this one. There there might be, I, I don't remember. Like a true recap, like a replay where they just kind of like in, in a TV show where they just splice a bunch of clips together. That's basically what we're going to do. Uh, yeah, one at most two, but definitely one because I remember doing it. But yeah, at, at most two of them. The first one, yeah, you did. I was out of town and you just did the intro for it. It was like episode 20, which I think we should do. We should do it for this 201st episode and then again, 20 episodes later. <laughs> do a recap every 20 episodes. Well, that's when the episodes are longer too. So it's made a little bit more sense. That's also true. So, well, anyway, so I, what we have coming up are, are basically the most popular episodes that we've had in the last 100 episodes, I think is the best of, right? Yeah, I, I can probably give you a summary right now. It had to do with Uber, independent contractors, the office and pizza. <laughs> and Yelp. And Yelp. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those five things. All right. Well, enjoy the show. We have a great episode today. We haven't had a guest on in a while. At least it seems like it's been a while. But we have Mark Fagiano with Taxjar, the founder and CEO of Taxjar. Did I get your name right, Mark? You did. Well, nice work. Uh, good to be here, guys. Well, yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, so Taxjar.com, it's a company in San Diego. But what's interesting about what they do, and obviously Mark can speak more of it, is on sales tax and dealing with, especially from a small business perspective, doing online e-commerce. I know a popular business that seems to be kind of uh, sprouting up probably the last few years, and Mark, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, is these kind of online sellers that are using Amazon to fulfill its shipment and basically use a shopping cart instead of setting up their own website. What about the sales tax implications in that? And I think sales tax in general is just a mess of laws. I mean, because you have to deal with how each state applies the different taxes depending upon where it's being sold or who it's being sold to. So Mark, this is something you deal with every day, right? Yeah. So to call it a mess is really an understatement. There's probably some more words that you don't want to use to better describe <laughs> it, but you're exactly right. So you know, five years ago, if we were having this conversation, if you talk to an online seller, they would probably say, I'm an eBay seller. I just sell on eBay. And what's really happened and where we're at now is that folks are multi-channel, right? They're selling on eBay. They're also selling on Amazon, most likely. They also have their own website, yeah. and they're using a point-of-sale device. They're using Square to go to a craft fair on the weekend or you know, some kind of trade show. And what that's done is dramatically changed their sales tax complexity. So what's happening now is that there are so many sellers, and they're competing you know, head-to-head. One of the biggest differentiators for them is shipping. 
So if you and I are selling a pair of Air Jordans, right, just as an example, and you're offering next day to, if Amazon will provide this eventually, same day turnaround, and I'm providing kind of the traditional three to four day, I don't stand a chance, right? So that's why folks are using this fulfillment by Amazon service, because it allows them to compete much better, and also the customers demand just quicker turnaround. What happens is when they use fulfillment by Amazon, they're literally sending all of their inventory to Amazon, and then Amazon takes care of the rest. But what Amazon is doing is distributing that inventory based on their kind of internal algorithm to say, okay, Matt's selling Air Jordans. We know that those sell in the particular part of the country, so we're going to send everything to our warehouse in Fresno, just as kind of a you know high-level example. Yeah. Well, if you're in Texas and your stuff gets shipped to California, California raises their hand and says, hey, look, I don't care if you've never been to California. I don't care if you don't have an employee in California or a storefront. The fact that your inventory is being stored here is sufficient enough connection to where you have Nexus in California. Therefore, we want you to comply with our laws. So we want you to get a sales tax license in California, and we want you to collect sales tax on items that are shipped to customers in California. Yeah. So what's happening is moms and pops, no matter what level of revenue they're at, are now having to comply in more than a dozen states, right, instead of just kind of worrying about their sales tax in their home state. Obviously, each state has its own issues. Are there any particular states that are a little bit more complicated than others, or is it pretty much just standard laws here and there? It's a really good question. So the laws are pretty complicated throughout. Really where it gets more complicated is in on a kind of the filing side of things and the work that somebody would have to do to get the data that's required to be able to file a sales tax return in those states. And that's why we started TaxJar. But there are really crazy examples around taxability Whatever item that you're selling, let's go back to our Air Jordans example, that may be taxable in one state. It may be exempt from tax in another. Or, you know, this is kind of crazy, but maybe the shoelaces are taxable in one state and not taxable in another. At the end of the day, the sales tax issue just gets in the way of growing their business. It's an administrative hassle and burden. So people just can't stand it. And if they want to do it, they just can't understand it. And that's typically what we see. Today, we have Anita Ron with Brightworks. Welcome to the show, Anita. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be able to let you know a little bit of insight about the small business world. I started a company about 18 years ago, which is called Brightworks, Inc., but we provide high-end quality janitorial services for commercial, industrial, and government organizations throughout the Southern California area. We've written a couple things about certifications for women-owned businesses, but the question that usually comes up at some point is, is this worth it and how is it going to benefit my business? Well, one of the things is if you qualify for business small certification, if you qualify for being a woman-owned business, or if you're a minority-owned business, then you have some opportunities out there because... As you know, the government is trying to assist other individuals to go up on the scale as far as being able to be successful in their businesses or what they're trying to start up and provide jobs in our communities. And so there is some certification. One is for women, and it is an extensive process. You actually should be in business for about three years because you'll have to provide your tax returns, letting them know that you've been in business and you're a solid company, and this is what you've been making for the last three years. So then there is a profile on you, the business, and files about your organization and yourself. 
Then there's also the certification for 8-8. 8-8 is a government SBA program that actually it is there to help minority businesses. And you need to own 51% of the business. So they're looking for someone that is honestly a minority and is not saying they are and they're really not. And what that does, it gives you a little bit of leverage to be able to compete in the government world to acquire businesses that they offer with GSA and other entities of the government. And what you're doing is being able to get an opportunity not to be bidding with other large conglomerates. And not only that, not bidding like 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 other companies. They actually narrow down the margins that you're able to bid with just a couple of organizations that are minority-owned or they're considered set-asides that they're willing to give it to a small minority business. So the competitive level is a little different, and it's actually put there in order to help some of these small businesses actually get off the ground. Very fun episode today. I'm really looking forward to something that I'm very much into, which is CrossFit. Actually, I'm not at all. <laughs> never done it in my life, but I feel like I should say that. Yeah, I've never done it, never planned on doing it. I have friends that are all about it, and I've seen people do it. It just seems like it's asking to be injured. It's not natural to be... They're just like jerking around tons of weight like awkwardly, and I don't know. It just seems very questionable, but... Actually, what I am into is all the CrossFit videos of people getting injured and doing crazy stuff. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I like, I like to watch injuries. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, but they, they do some really, dark. really dumb stuff. And, you, and it's obvious bad form. And then, of course, like, it's really what not to do in CrossFit. So what we're going to talk about, this is a CrossFit gym in West Palm Beach, Florida. So this CrossFit gym has <laughs> their logo is basically the exact uh, it's not exactly the same but it's the Michael Jordan it's pretty close jump man logo but upside down is it trying to make some sort of message i don't understand the the thing to begin with but that's what nike's going after them saying hey we own the rights to the jump man logo this is infringement you've just taken our logo and flipped it upside down but see what's interesting about this whole thing is crossfit themselves they're an organization and i think we just actually talked about this a couple of days ago about how they actually license their name out to other companies and other gems or whatever pay to use this license. So accordingly, they are very aggressive to make sure that they are able to maintain the sanctity of their brand by suing everyone that uses the brand without their consent. Because, you know, these other companies are paying a license fee. So in order for that to have some value, they have to enforce the brand. And here, I mean, if you think about it, if there is a licensing brand, they go day by day making sure that no one else is using it. So they have a pretty robust legal team to do this. Now that same legal team has to defend from trademark infringement rather than uh, enforcing it. I like the attorneys for the CrossFit gym's response. With all due respect to Michael Jordan, I've never seen Michael Jordan slam dunk a 70-pound kettlebell upside down. (laughs) (laughs) That was their response. (laughs) Yeah. But it's fair because the question is, you know, we've gone through trademark infringement before. The question is, is there any likelihood of confusion? And there's a number of elements, but that's always the element that is hotly contested, right? And here we are bringing you another episode of Legally Sound Smart Business. We're going to talk about the life of Lindsay Lohan. (laughs) Not surprisingly, she's in the news again for something bad. Uh, this time, it is she's getting alleged of stealing a business idea. I guess she had a joint venture. Her 
and I believe her brother was involved too, and then a friend of her brother's were in this joint venture to develop this shopping app. I think fashion app, if there's a difference. Fashion app. Yeah. Revolutionized users shopping experiences. So whatever that means. But <laughs> anyways, so they had the idea. I assume Lindsay Lohan was only involved for name purposes only because I don't know why you would choose her as a any sort of business partner. But basically, they had this deal or this joint venture with her brother's friend. And I guess eventually she just kind of you know stole his idea and ran off with it. And now he has just filed in Manhattan Supreme Court for $60 million for her theft of his, his business idea. So yeah, Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> the app that they're working on uses some kind of image recognition technology that allows users to basically identify clothing or accessories and photographs or social media feeds. So of course, you know, they're responding that the two apps aren't clones, that the suit's meritless, of course, and that's their defense. But I think the focus is going to be on these actual written contracts because there's so many app clones of different games and so forth of each other. And a lot of times we've talked about this in the past is from an intellectual property perspective, the only thing that you can really rely on is trademark and copyright. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. I mean, for the actual legal aspect of this, I'm sure even their original idea was very similar to a bunch of other apps that are already out there. I'm not going to begin to try to figure out what her app actually does specifically, but I'm sure this isn't the first shopping or fashion style app that's out there. So it's, and from that aspect, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to prove that she copied it or stole it. But if there's actual documentation of this, that'll be a little bit easier. And I don't get why they're suing for $60 million. Seems a little bit high. Or randomly chosen. But that's what happens with those lawsuits. I mean, you just pick a number and then see where it falls or damages. Uh, what do we have? Oh, we got something I know you're going to like today. Is it about pizza? No, it's not about pizza, but it is about one of the topics that are highly talked about on this podcast. So we're combining a few things here. We've got in a, a dispute between Lyft and Uber. Oh, nice. I know you are anti-Uber, and I think this is actually going to probably make it worse for you because... Worse or better? I, I think it's going to be more support for... Like, people are going to join my cause after this today's, you know? Um, yeah, I'm saying you're going to dislike Uber more after this as well. Yeah. Yeah. So the former... I need to get this guy's name, too, because he had a pretty awesome name. I want to make sure I find it before I get into the story. Travis Vander Zanden. Yeah, great name. So he he's the former COO of Lyft, and now Lyft is suing him for a breach of confidentiality, this confidentiality agreement, and then a breach of fiduciary duty. So basically, he was a COO of Lyft, so pretty high up exec, and he's being accused of essentially taking all this confidential information from Lyft before he then went to Uber. So a few things that he's done here that are obviously all accusations, so I don't want to say he's done it or not, but downloading non-public documents to his personal Dropbox before leaving. So we're talking confidential strategic product plans, financial info, forecast, growth data. I guess they had a meeting set up right before he was about to leave on a, I believe on a Friday and about his resignation. He canceled the meeting last minute. And then went home and backed up a number of emails and confidential documents to his home computer and cell phone. Oh, man. Synced personal Dropbox to the company for up to three months out. So those are a few of the things. I'm sure there's more than that. But obviously, it's accusations. But, but the problem with this is that Lyft hired someone to like go back and look what happened. And like that's how they know these, this happened, because they can look at his computer and see that he pulled this information from his work computer, work phone, and 
and synced it up to his personal account, so not looking good for old Vander Zanden. Yeah. So you got this email. Uh, I guess there was a, a security breach. I don't know if you if you want to call it a security breach, but it, it looks like some of their customer information was sold to a third party. Uh, and this is ammo to go. Their customer email list was sold, and they were able to kind of verify that through a couple different avenues. They basically sent the email out to, I think, only the people they believe were affected. I think they mentioned that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, looks like it might have possibly been sold to Target Sports USA, which I assume is related to Target, the store, but maybe I'm making an inaccurate assumption. But No, I don't think so. I think it's Target like ammo and guns, but go ahead. <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes sense. All right, well, scratch that. So, But what's interesting is that one of the ways that they confirmed all this is that this other Target Sports USA, they actually purchased, or this is what they believe, they purchased an email list from who they thought was ammo to go And from their perspective, that didn't happen. And so then they started looking a little bit deeper and found, okay, wait a minute, some of our data has been breached and basically all the emails have been uh, taken and now is being sold on the open market to uh, companies like these. So lots of issues here, but I think one of the coolest things is that And we'll post a screenshot of the actual email because I think this is a very good representation as to a great way of dealing with a problem like this. I mean, a small business that is, you know, being hacked, you know, and we've talked about in the past, and I'm sure security experts will agree that there's only so much things you can do to prevent a security breach. Obviously, the smaller the business, the harder it is. But when it happens, what do you do? Question of the day. Every quarter, we have to take care of some corporate stuff, and many of my employees are required to work on the weekend. Some of the employees have voice complaints, but can I legally do this? Okay, so basically this is a question about scheduling uh, and how and when can you make your employees work. And just like everything in employment law from a conceptual point of view, usually the employers can do everything they want unless it's prohibited by law. Right. I know that sounds funny, but that's really how you have to start it out because there's so many little small details that are prohibited. The the answer to the question, can you do that? Yeah, always. But the question is, when you do it, is it going to affect something else? So restaurants in New York are being sued by the music industry for playing music in their restaurants, which... You know, like I said, when you think about it, is there a valid license to the music that's being played or how exactly is this set up? Or maybe some restaurants are just having the owners record their own music and it's that's what's being played over the <laughs> loudspeakers. But it's a really, really interesting idea that, like I said, I never really thought about it. And so, yeah, I, lucky for me, you've looked into music licensing questions <laughs> for restaurants. There are these what are called performing rights organizations. And there's a few of them. There's BMI, there's ASCAP, there's SESAC, and each one of them have different focuses and so forth. And not really important to all this. But the point is, is that they govern not only stuff that's played on TV, but also radio for music. By the way, there's also related to this, so sports events too. And I've dealt with that as well. When you're watching the NFL, right, there's always that warning that this is not supposed to be rebroadcasted, et cetera. And then you're sitting in your living room thinking like, wait a minute, am I breaking the law right now <laughs> You know, by watching this? But the reality is, is that when you have a restaurant, for example, 
depending upon whether or not the general public can listen to the music or whether or not how the size of your TV and all these very specific specifications will depend upon whether or not you have to pay a licensing fee to the appropriate organization for use of that. And so oftentimes, like for radio, if you have more than like six loudspeakers, okay, or more than four loudspeakers in any one room or adjoining outdoor space, there's all these little technical details. But the point is, is that if you want to play the radio or even like people say like Pandora or Spotify, you can't just play that and say, okay, now this is my media entertainment for my restaurant. You actually have to get that license to actually play that. And so oftentimes, you know, if you think about it, and we talked about this in the past, the only way that this license has any value of, or people have any incentive to actually buy a license is enforcement. So these guys, these organizations are very aggressive in making sure that these rules are followed. To such an extent, they'll even send in literally undercover so-called informants into these restaurants just to document and file a lawsuit or send a demand letter. So San Diego Magazine, they published their September issue on the front. It says Hidden San Diego. So it's all these secret things to do and see and kind of want to see where some of these things are, but I'll have to I'll have to buy the issue, I guess. Or maybe I won't. I don't know if I'm gonna if I'm gonna protest what they've done. But apparently there is a was this a blog, I think is what it is. I should probably know this. Yeah, it's a it's a blog or it's a website. I guess I didn't go to the website, which I probably should have. But so there's a woman in Brazil. They called her they called her a blogger, so I figured she just had a website slash blog, but it's also called Hidden San Diego. And so now this issue came out and she's very upset because she's claiming that the magazine essentially stole her idea. She's been doing this for four years, according to her. And now she's, you know, basically had her idea stolen, all her hard work. So this happens. She posts something on Facebook. There's actually a pretty big backlash against San Diego Magazine. I guess she had a lot of people on her side. And then San Diego Magazine posts a response to about a story they allegedly stole which I guess it's not even really a story they stole. I think it's more of an idea, but the response, we'll, we'll have to link the response so people can read it, but the response is is pretty poor in my opinion. It's really belittling the the blogger, and this is where I'm torn, I guess, is the facts are, I think, in favor of San Diego Magazine, if everything's true based on what they say. They just did it in the worst, you know, one of the worst ways possible. Like, they could have handled this with a lot, a lot more tact and and come off a lot more professionally. It's what's interesting, if you read the comments under the article, the Facebook comments, it seems like people in general are overwhelmingly in support of the blogger. We're talking about valuation today. I'm sure a lot of people have seen Shark Tank or have heard at least heard about Shark Tank, but if you've seen an episode, you know that at least once an episode Actually, not even once an episode. Every single one you see, they come out and the first thing they say is, I'm offering this percent of my company for this amount of money. So, you know, you multiply that out and that's how you get what the entrepreneurs valued their company at. And there's usually a dispute between what someone values it at and what the sharks value it at. And so I think that's, I would say for those people that are on that show, that's probably the toughest thing for them to do. Because a lot of times 
Sometimes the businesses have some track record or some sales or specific industry, things like that. But I think a lot of times they're just kind of throwing numbers out there. They've looked at prior episodes or prior things and just tried to take a stab at you know what they think the value of their company is. And sometimes they get called out by it, especially Mark Cuban will do that pretty frequently. And Yeah. The most common factors in the different calculations for businesses that have been established is using their revenue or EBITDA. EBITDA being earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And I mean, that's a pretty standardized general accounting practice number. It's an actual number. And, and then usually there's a multiplier added to that depending upon, I don't know, the industry or, or, or what have you, right? There's different standards and so forth. And so usually there's different calculations based upon that, but the reality is if everyone used that, most of these startups would be worth basically zero because they're usually pre-revenue, so. To people that are looking to value their young companies, there's a lot of different options to look at, and I think it's just finding something that, one, that makes sense, and two, they can explain or back up to the best of their ability. And I think if you come in with that, if you have numbers, great, that you can back it up. That's obviously great. But I think if you can back it up and explain why you valued it that at the number you did, I think that's going to be the the best you know thing you can do walking into a group of investors. So American Idol is coming back this season, right? It seems to be coming up soon if it hasn't started already. I can't say I even know if it's still around or who the people are. All the original people are off of it now, aren't they? I think that happened a long time ago. One winner with the unfortunate name of Philip Phillips. <laughs> when I was Googling it to do more research, I was trying to figure out if that was just like a mistake or... No, it's just, it's basically the same first and last name with an S difference, right? <laughs> yeah. And I guess he was a winner a few years ago in 2012, and he's trying to get out of his contract that was signed saying that you know, it's just really patently unfair. And he got uncompensated for a show. He did a performance for an insurance company that was an endorsement deal. And he was only paid 20% commission when he was supposed to be paid 40%. I mean, those aren't as bad of things as if you actually read the agreement itself. And like I said, I think we have something that seems pretty legit in terms of what's in the actual agreement. What's interesting about this contestant, Philip Phillips, is that what he's alleging or his attorneys are, are putting forth is that this 19 Entertainment is not a licensed talent agency. And this is all under the Talent Agency Act in California. And it's a very controversial old law. It's, I think it was developed in the 60s, but it's been used basically if you are a individual manager or a corporation that is procuring employment on behalf of an artist or some other talent. And artists are defined, always have definitions, and procurement even has definition, employment has definitions under the act, that you need to be licensed. What's controversial is that if you're not licensed, then your contract may be totally voidable, and that all the profits that could have been made without that contract may be disgorged from that unlicensed agency. And so kind of peculiar is it that this 19 Entertainment is being alleged to not be licensed as a talent agency. All right, so let's see. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And uh, don't forget to leave a positive review on iTunes for us. Yeah, I mean, if you've listened this long into the episode, you obviously like it, so. Unless you fell asleep, which in that case, time to wake up. Yeah, and leave that review. All right, keep it sound, keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. 
The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.